0: couple of verses in chapter five, and if you are visiting with us this morning, I just echo what Clark said welcome we 're glad you 're here uh, my name is joey i 'm the pastor and uh, would love to have an opportunity to meet you answer any questions that you may have and to um, my, make myself and the elders available uh, to you um, to better get you connected here at Deer park fellowship but we 've been going through um, the book of First Timothy over the last several months. And as we have seen repeatedly and as we've continued to be reminded, this is a, uh, an ecclesiastical letter, which is that it was written for the church. And the expectation is, is that this letter uh, written by the Apostle Paul, given to Timothy was the pastor at the Church of Ephesus, who was eldering along with the uh, the Ephesian elders. Uh, this would have been a letter that would have been read uh, to the gathered assembly, and much of the letter we see is directed to Timothy, and uh, and Timothy is to take that letter and um, and to teach it to put it forward to the church as a faithful servant of Jesus Christ being co- uh, committed to the gospel that, was, uh, that he was brought up in, uh, that the Apostle Paul, his mentor, brought clarity to in his older age. Uh, and as we know, according to church history, Timothy uh, stayed faithful being martyred uh, because of his commitment to God and the gospel. And so this morning, we're looking at the first two verses... Of chapter five, the first two verses of chapter five. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to pray, and then we will uh, work through this passage uh, together. And so, the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he wrote these words to Timothy. He says, "Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Verse two. Older women as mothers." Younger women as sisters in all purity. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for Christ. Lord, we thank you that we were just reminded uh, uh, through singing of just how far reaching the gospel is. Lord, there's no sinner that is outside uh, of your ability to be able to save them. And so, Lord, we rest in the sufficiency of the spilled blood of Christ. And God, we pray this morning as we look at your Word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see. Lord, help us to internalize what it is that we see here in this text, God, and we ask that your Spirit would use us to change us, God, to conform us more into the image of Jesus Christ. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. So, a few questions as, as we kind of begin to, to look at this passage of Scripture. Uh, and, and really, the, the title of the sermon this morning is, is the heart posture of confrontation. That's kind of what the Apostle Paul is getting at here uh, with Timothy and consequently with the church of Ephesus. But, but a few questions that, that I asked of myself uh, that I think is fair for us to ask collectively this morning... Uh, are these questions. What, what do we do or how do we feel when we see a brother or sister in Christ diving headfirst into sin? Right? What do we do, how do we feel when we see a brother or sister in Christ diving headfirst into sin? Should we confront them? Right? Should we confront that brother or sister And in our confrontation of that brother or sister, should our hearts be calibrated, if you will, before we confront? If we confront them, Right, and this is maybe the bottom line way of asking all of these questions. If we confront them, how do we confront a brother or sister who has been deceived by sin, who seems to be diving headfirst into sin, and being deceived by sin, clouding their ability to cherish Christ, right? To find joy in the Lord, to rest in the finished work in Christ, right? If we confront them, how do we do so in a way that is ultimately for their good and brings glory to God. that That's the concern of the passage of Scripture this morning that we're looking at, these first two verses here in chapter 5. These were questions uh, perhaps in the church of Ephesus that the Apostle Paul either uh, was... Uh, asked, and perhaps he 's answering that question, or perhaps uh, he was anticipating that these would be questions that Timothy would have along with the Ephesian elders and along with uh, those in the church, all right? but it serves as a God not just for Timothy it serves not as a God just for the elders at Ephesus, but it serves as a God for all of us collectively right as as a church body. This should be something that concerns All of us confronting in a way that's warm, confronting in a way that honors God, confronting in such a way that is ultimately and clearly for the good of the person that's being confronted. We tend to, uh, this side of eternity, because of our sin nature, we tend to fall into one of, of two ditches in our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm going to give you both ditches, but this morning we're, on, we're really only going to look at the second ditch because I think that is the ditch that the Apostle Paul is chiefly concerned about. But, but ditch one is this, right? We, we see confrontation as meanness, as synonymous with being, with being mean or unkind, right? In other words, it's, it's the opposite. Confrontation is the opposite in this ditch. It's the opposite of niceness, Right, we don't want to rock the boat, so we fall silent when we shouldn't fall silent. Right? Those of us that fall in this ditch tend to hide behind being nice as an excuse not to confront someone whose life is headed for disaster. Right, we also tend to do this with those who have perhaps sinned against us, right? And so not only uh, do we fall silent when we perhaps should confront someone whose life is headed for disaster, but perhaps we fall silent when someone sinned against us and we need to, uh, the godly thing to, be, to do would be, uh, with, with qualifiers that we'll get into, would be to confront that brother or sister. And our, our lack of speaking up, it always tends to manifest itself in bitterness, or it manifests itself because it's going to come out, it manifests itself in in passive-aggressive comments or sarcastic types of behavior, right? So not speaking up because we're fearful that speaking up is synonymous with meanness or contradicts niceness. It ends up being unloving to the person that we perhaps should confront, but ultimately bottling Uh, a confrontation that God is calling you to, bottling that up and pressing it down and suppressing it, uh, actually makes you the opposite of nice. It makes you embittered or it makes you passive-aggressive. It makes you unpleasant to be around because that's going to come out in unhealthy ways. The confrontation will come out in an unhealthy manner. So that's ditch one. Ditch two is, is something that we may fall into uh, in, in an effort to repent of ditch one, okay? And, and it's, it, it, perhaps it, it, it goes more with some of our personalities or our natural bent uh, maybe tends to take us into this ditch, but this ditch is wrathful. This ditch uh, is harsh, and in this ditch we're always confronting, right? There seems to always be someone that we need to confront. And, and these types of people um, tend to talk a whole lot, or we always think that we see things clearly, and, and we often wound people in such a way in our confrontations that it drives them to despair. It drives them to discouragement. And, and oftentimes, those of us that fall into this ditch, uh, we don't receive feedback well, right? We don't receive confrontation very well. Those of us fall into this ditch, we tend to tell ourselves that we can't find anyone qualified enough to mentor us. We can't find anyone qualified enough to correct us. And at the root of this, at the root of the first ditch, perhaps, is the fear of man. At the root of this ditch is pride, right? And and it's more sinister than you might think. The Bible, and specifically our passage this morning, it charts for us A different course, right? A different course in our relationships and in our confrontations that helps us both to repent of the fear of man and helps us both to, uh, as well, to repent of pride. And in so doing, it allows us to walk the path of joy. Which, and I've said this before, which one pastor uh, defines? He 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 puts together repentance, which is implied in this passage of scripture, uh, and he pairs it with joy. To repent is to call someone. To their joy. For us to repent is to embrace our joy once again. So let's get into our text, and we're going to work to harmonize this passage of Scripture with a few other passages. Uh, and the first thing that we need to do just right out of the gate is to, we need to identify uh, the players that are in uh, this text. What is an older man, an older woman? Okay, what is a younger man or a younger woman? Right, an older man or an older woman can can be defined in a, in a in a at least a couple of ways but first in the most obvious answer to that is age its actual uh biological age and we a couple of passages and you'll see how this lends us to a, a, another uh definition for older man and woman as well but Leviticus chapter 19 you don't have to turn there verse 32 says, you shall stand up before the gray head in honor, and that word honor, to defer to or respect or to be partial toward there. You shall honor the face of an old man and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Or Proverbs chapter 20, verse 29. The glory of young men is their strength. Okay, In the splendor of the old, and that word old usually translated there as, an, as elders or elderly, uh, the splendor of old men is their gray head. Or Proverbs 16.31, gray hair is a crown of glory. It's gained in a righteous life. Right, so as it relates to age, and again, we, we see something else that I'll draw to, bring to our attention here in just a minute, but as it relates to age, we see just in these Old Testament passages words like honor, right? words like splendor, or the phrase crown of glory, all, all of which is associated with growing old. Right? The, the natural course of life is one in which a person should grow in wisdom and in stature and in respect. It's this idea uh, of having gone around the block a few times, if you will. Right? And as an older person, right, those of you that are, that are older in the congregation this morning, you can attest that you've learned a few things. You've learned a few things. I had one person tell me one time that uh, they refused uh, to—they were—they were getting a lot of grays in their hair, and they refused to color their grays because they would tell me that they earned every single one of their gray hairs. Um, Now, we know that with age doesn't necessarily come wisdom, right? With age doesn't necessarily come godliness. With well, age doesn't necessarily come the person in which you would want to emulate your life after, right? Some older people reap what they've sown in life, right? Despair or heartache or sorrow. But if we think about sin, and I would encourage us to think about sin in this way, if we think about sin as the disruptor of God's world, because that's what it is, right? Sin is the disruptor of God's world. If we think about it that way, then we should see that the natural course of life should be one in which old age and honor and splendor and the crown of glory go together, right? That should be the natural course of this life. life. And it's here that, that we get, and perhaps you've already kind of picked up on it, we get the second meaning of an older man, or an older woman, one which should pair, again, well with age, but it sometimes doesn't, unfortunately, and it's that of spiritual maturity, right? Spiritual maturity. And by this, I mean a Christian who, who, who's walked the Christian path for a while, right? One who has some spiritual mileage under them. One who's endured a few trials in life. One who has, in Christ, overcome a few temptations, in life. One who's weathered a few spiritual storms, right? And we should engage with these types of believers, right? These fathers and these mothers, right? We should engage with them in a fatherly way or in a a motherly way, which means that we should see them as worthy of honor. We should see them as worthy of respect. And this connects us, or it should connect us, to the fifth commandment right? It should connect us to the fifth commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, says this, honor your father and your mother, right? We know this. We should be taught this for any of us that have grown up in the church. This should be familiar to us, right? Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Exodus 20, verse 12, right? The the reformers, Right, kind of 16th-ish century, they often identified in their expositions, they gave us a few different definitions for mothers and fathers. They, they gave definitions as it related to this commandment of biological fathers, biological mothers. They gave definitions of adopted fathers, adopted mothers. They gave definitions of the older saints in the church like we just looked at. They looked uh, they uh, defined fathers and mothers as governing authorities even in the civil sphere as well. Uh, and they define them in the ecclesiastical sphere as, as pastors or as elders. Uh, the point is, is that we're to approach these older brothers and sisters in the Lord in a way that is mindful of and submissive to the fifth commandment. Right? We should honor. Them. We should honor them. And that word honor, it comes from the root word which is translated to be weighty or to weigh heavily upon. There, there's this, or should be, in our lives, this reverent, weighty seriousness to the way that we treat our mother and father. We're not to be flippant. We're not to be condescending. We're not to be dismissive. Fathers and mothers carry weight in our lives lives, and we should speak to them and about them in that very way, All right, The, the fifth commandment, what's interesting about, about the Apostle Paul talking about this here, and what's interesting about the fifth commandment, when I look at it, is it's the very first horizontal commandment, Right? The, and, and I've talked about this before, but the reformers, again, they, they helped uh, us to see the division between the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments of God, the first four commandments being uh, uh, our relationship, our vertical relationship between us and God, right? And, and when that is right, right? And that can only be right through Christ Jesus. But when that is right, that impacts. The back six commandments, which is the second table of the law, which has to deal with our horizontal relationships with one another, right? And you can't get those back six commandments right unless the four, the first table of the law, are organized well. And the fifth commandment here, honor your father and your mother, is the very first commandment on that horizontal, uh, on that second table. It's the first horizontal relational concern there. If we get that first horizontal relationship wrong, right, so far as it depends on us, right, when we stand before God, if we get that first horizontal relationship wrong, we will get other relationships wrong, right? I've heard young single women receive advice to, uh, to pay attention to how a young man, someone that they're perhaps considering marrying, pay attention to how a young man treats his mom, because that's a good indicator of how he may one day treat you, right? Maybe some of you have received that advice before, but I think that there's wisdom in that advice, and I think there is biblical wisdom in that advice. So when we're we're looking at a passage that's speaking of fathers and mothers, I think we need to give it some time to think through, who are those fathers and mothers in my life? Right? Some of you may, your biological parents may not be in your life for various reasons that, that are outside of your control. Right? And, and again, that's, that's, that's because of sin, the disruptor of this world. Right? That's not the way things ought to be. But all of us in some shape, form, or fashion have various fathers and mothers. And to them we owe honor. But what of the second group? All right, and we'll get and I know this is about confrontation, and we're going to get there in just a moment, but what of the second group?? Right? What's a younger man, a younger woman?? Right? We see them in our text characterized as brothers or sisters. And again, the way that we view them, the way that we honor them, the way that we treat them, has an impact on the way that we confront them if confrontation is needed. But we see them, again, we see a younger man, a younger woman, we see them characterized as brothers and sisters, right? And, and those are, uh, they're perhaps uh, physically and or spiritually younger Christians, right? Or, or they could even be our peers, right? Someone that is, is a, this same distance down the road spiritually with us, someone that's perhaps our age, right? But a few passages came to my mind as I spent some time in this text as it relates to, to brothers and sisters, but particularly as I was thinking initially of younger ones in the faith. I was thinking of my own kids in this way. Matthew chapter 18, verses 5 and 6. Whoever receives one such child in my name, right? These are the words of Christ. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. These are strong words from Christ, right? And we can see this in the way that we confront these little ones, by the way. Our confrontations could lead these little ones towards sin. And we'll get to more of that in a moment. Or consider the Apostle Paul's warning to fathers. Again, this was to the Ephesian Church, if, uh, Ephesians chapter six verse four. Instructions to fathers: do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. All right, this one puts confrontation clearly into perspective here. but our quick, and I, and I include me in this, all of us, right? our quick annoyed, harsh discipline of our children can drive them further away from God and certainly further away from us. The Lord has strong words to say about those who would devour God's children. We're to be nurturing. Christ says that those of us who would engage with a child in such a way as to cause them to sin, it's better that we never be born. The children, these children are young. They're impressionable, they're trusting, and we will be held accountable for how we lead them, how we confront them, how we discipline them. Fathers are to discipline in such a way that's redemptive. Fathers are to discipline in such a way that's God-centered and um, restorative, not punishing. Mercy and grace should be found for those who are being disciplined. Right? The, the difference between a father's discipline of a son, it, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't mimic that of, a, of, a, of a, a prison system. The father's discipline of a son shouldn't mimic that of a prison system. Right? The, the aim of a prison, prison system isn't reformation. It's punitive. It's punishment. Right? A, a little one stumbling their way in their walk with God... It should be corrected in such a way that it doesn't cause them to despair. Right? We want to shield them from despairing. So, so these little ones, first and foremost, as I'm looking at this, these little brothers and sisters could be our own children. Right? These brothers and sisters that the Apostle Paul, speaking of the Ephesian passage, passage, could also be our peers, or perhaps they're not younger than us in age, but maybe they're younger spiritually in the faith, if you will, and we want to be for their spiritual good, right? We should be concerned about the spiritual welfare of our brothers and sisters that God has put in our lives, right? And, and, uh, and, and we should see that, that it matters how we approach our older saints in Christ, that it matters how we approach our peers, that it matters how we approach our younger children in the faith, because what we're dealing with here has eternal significance. This is talking about one's relationship with our triune God. So we need to be self-aware in our confrontations. We need to be self-aware of our proclivities as we engage others. We need to be aware of our own sins. We need to be aware of the ways in which we could cause spiritual harm in the lives of those in our community. And if they're caught in sin, which is what our passage is dealing about, if they are in fact caught in sin, we want to show them Christ, right? We want to show them Christ because this side of eternity, these types of people Right? These gray-haired saints are not immune to being deceived by sin. Our peers are not immune to being deceived by sin. These young children in the faith that we're called to nurture are not immune to being deceived by sin. And this is the case because this side of eternity, none of us, as we should know, are immune to being deceived by sin. So we should see a passage like this and it, it should first humble us. I would even venture to say that we should see ourselves here. We have these types of relationships. And if we look around the room this morning, which I would encourage you to do, I think we should see something that's really healthy. We should see that we're multi-generational, aren't we? We're multi-generational in age, and we're also multi-generational as it relates to how far along we all are in our walk with the Lord, some of us are further alone or have been sanctified for longer than other people. And, and the sanctification of an individual is dependent upon the Holy Spirit's work in their lives, and it's nothing that we can force or cram down their throats, right? We're all in different stages of life. And that's healthy, and that's good, as we grow in conformity, not to our preferences, but as we grow in conformity to God and His Word. In the situation here that that Paul is instructing Timothy, and thus the church of Ephesus, and if you look back at your text with me, he's encouraging them not to rebuke. Do not rebuke is what we see here. This is the only time the word rebuke is used in this way in the New Testament here. And the root word for rebuke means to strike means to strike. And in verb form, it means to disapprove severely or angrily. To disapprove severely or angrily and it's closely associated with violence it's closely associated to uh being a brawler being a a bully which is condemned earlier in 1st Timothy chapter 3 if you look at the very uh first part of, of verse 3 and we've already looked at this but one of the qualifications of an elder is to not be a drunkard not to be violent there's the word there's the it has the same root word but to be instead gentle. Right, we, we live in a society that loves to mock. Right? We live in a society that, that loves to shame and loves to ridicule and loves to pounce on someone at the first sign of, of weakness. And even in our churches, sadly, there can be this deep-seated, genuinely, there can be this deep-seated, sinister thrill when someone that is not us stumbles, Right? Somehow their stumbling makes us look better to ourselves or feel better about ourselves. We, we would never admit this, but there's at least that capacity in all of us. Right? It, it can show up in the gossipy ways that we share a prayer request about the felling of a brother or a sister. Right? It, it can show up in our lack of prayers for other people. It can show up in a I told you so sort of posture, even if you don't verbally say, I told you so. As God's church, we ought to be setting a different example in our relationships with one another. Amen? We should be leading the culture in how to interact with one another in a way that's edifying, not in a way that tears down. All right, we have to repent of those sorts of behaviors and musings that uh, aren't for the glory of God and aren't for the good, eternal good of a believer, and we need to be vigilant as it relates to restoring a brother or a sister in Christ. We need to be earnest. God's church is to continue. God expects us as His church in our relationships with one another to continue the restorative work that Christ started in his earthly ministry. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18 for a moment. Matthew chapter 18. I'm going to read 10 verses, starting with verse 10. I want us to see something here. Start with verse 10. We we see Jesus telling a parable you may or may not be familiar with. He says, "'See that you don't despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray.' So it's not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Continue, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, and you can note the process here, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Don't tell anybody else. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen to you, Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. He's saying as an unbeliever, right? Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on anything, agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Question. Did you know that the parable of the lost sheep precedes Jesus' instructions on what would be called church discipline? Did you know that the parable in which the shepherd leaves the 99 to go and find and restore the one. It comes right before the section where churches use it as a, a discipline roadmap. Do, do we think that it's a coincidence that Jesus tells us something about his heart and something about his shepherding ministry before he gives us handles, before he even gets to the handles on how to confront a brother or a sister, a father or a mother who's caught in sin? And then take a step back, and we got to ask ourselves do we see confrontation as the means by which, according to Matthew chapter 18, we can gain a brother or sister in Christ Jesus? It's not a coincidence. Right, it's not a coincidence that the parable of the lost sheep comes before the text on church discipline because the way, our methods, the way in which we seek to confront or correct a brother or sister in Christ, the way we go about that matters. Right, you can At the end of the day, when you boil it down to the bottom line, you may be right about a particular issue and you've gone about it in a really sinful, destructive way. Right, our heart posture matters. It matters because we're representing Christ. Right? We're we're to be ambassadors for Christ and how we confront people who are created in the image of God matters to our savior. Right? It, it also should matter to us because we should want that brother or sister to legitimately be restored to the Lord. Right? We don't want to drive them further away because our approach was harsh or wrathful or provoking toward anger or provoking toward despair or provoking toward a denunciation of the faith. Right? So instead of mocking, instead of rebuking as the Apostle Paul is telling us not to do, Instead of putting a person to to shame, which seems to be the issue at Ephesus, Paul says, instead of that, encourage. Encourage is the word that he uses, and you may remember that word, from last week when we looked at it, the word encourage is usually translated as entreat or to beg or to plead. to, uh, and, and, and that is to, to, to try to move someone or earnestly support or encourage someone toward an action or toward a response. And if you remember from last week, that Greek word for encourage, it derives itself from the same root word that we see for the Holy Spirit as the Apostle John uses it. So much like Timothy's preaching, his confrontation, our confrontation, our encouragement to others should be dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. It should be dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. So a couple of things about this. Number one... Our confrontations should be dependent upon the Holy Spirit because only the Holy Spirit of God can change the heart of an individual, right? The prophet Ezekiel, he speaks of how it is that the Spirit of God takes a cold, callous heart of stone and turns it into a warm, healthy heart of flesh. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. So we are to rely and trust the Holy Spirit of God because only the Holy Spirit of God can turn that heart. Only the Holy Spirit of God can turn a heart of an individual away from the sins that they so cherish into a sufficient, glorious, bodily resurrected Savior. Only the Holy Spirit of God can do that. We can't do that. We can't manufacture that. We can't manipulate that. Secondly, and again, if we remember from last week, the Spirit and the Word go together. The Spirit and the Word go together, right? And we don't have the authority to separate them. They always go together. And if we are confronting, we need to have clear categories for sin. If we're confronting, we need to understand what biblical restoration looks like. So what we're encouraging the brother and sister in Christ toward should be biblical. It should be Christ-focused. We don't create our own categories for what all of that looks like. Again, we look to the Bible for the definition of sin. We don't come up with made man remedies to overcome sin or overcome temptation. We look to Scripture for those gospel remedies. Now, this doesn't mean that we, we can't use wisdom and discernment. Right? For instance, say a man's heart has been captured by an addiction to alcohol. We could turn to a passage like Galatians 5 Verse 21, and we can see, and not just there, but 1 Timothy chapter 3 as well as it relates to the qualifications of an elder, and we can see that the Bible unequivocally uh, uh, denounces drunkenness, right? Drunkenness, and all its shapes, forms, and fashions is clearly condemned by Scripture. We are called to have self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, right? And so we can turn to a passage like that, But should we then legalistically conclude that alcohol as the substance is sinful or evil? No. It could be enjoyed in moderation by someone who has self-control, but would it be wise for me to counsel a brother who has no self-control whatsoever as it relates to alcohol consumption to stay away from it completely and if need be check into a detox facility right i may not be able to turn chapter and verse there but it would be biblically wise of me to counsel that brother or sister to completely do away with it never to touch it again and perhaps if their body chemically is so dependent on him they, on it they might need to check into a detox facility there would be wisdom there but and here's the key and, and this brings us back to Christ. Right? Is, is my confrontation or is my counseling of a brother or a sister, one, is it, is it driven by the Word and Spirit, as we just talked about, and is it, is it driving an individual to Christ Jesus? And continue to use the example of the, the brother or the sister who is wrestling with an addiction to alcohol. Right? Is, is my counseling of them to come off of that does it lead them to a place where they're, they're exchanging the God of drunkenness for the God of sobriety? And again, we can't control the heart posture of an individual, but in my, in my approach of them, the goal is for them to be restored to Christ. The goal is for them to be a worshiper of the triune God, and from there flows them overcoming a sinful, perhaps lifelong addiction. And this is what we call repentance and faith, right? The call to repent and believe, they always go together. They're two sides to the same coin. You can't have repentance without faith, and you can't have faith without repentance. And neither one of these can be commanded to a brother or sister who is stumbling or has has stumbled apart from the Word and Spirit. Again, our methods matter so this morning, I want to look just to close us down. I want to look and encourage you to, to perhaps do your own reflections on this. Uh, to, even today would be greater, this week. But, but turn with me to Matthew chapter 7 as I close this. Matthew chapter 7. I just want to give us a few, few handles here. And I've, in, in the handles I've just added to the takeaways, and they're not in your bulletin this morning. We'll email them out to you. Jesus says this, he says, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll so clearly uh, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye, right? This is not a call. The passage has been grossly misapplied so often. It's not a call to not judge. And by judge, again, the, that word uh, is to uh, to help someone being deceived by sin, to shock their conscience toward being restored to the lord but but what jesus is commending here is the same way in which you would judge someone you better make sure that you're applying that to yourself first and foremost right to to apply a judgment to someone and to not apply it to yourself is a very definition of hypocrisy right and so so we we have these handles here that that jesus gives as it relates to approaching someone uh, in confrontation, confronting a brother or a sister in Christ. And what, he, what Jesus is doing here is assuming that the heart work has not been done, the preliminary heart work that needs to be done before you open your mouth to another individual, right? he's, he's assuming that hasn't been done and he's bringing us back. Before you can counsel the heart of another believer, your heart needs to be counseled by the word of God. Right? And if you're unwilling to be counseled by the Word, if you're someone that doesn't have another individual in your life, that's speaking into your life, that has the, the freedom to be able to call you out, you have no authority whatsoever, biblical authority, to go and confront someone else. Right? And so there is hard work to be done in our own lives before we would dare confront another individual. And when we get to that place where we confront another individual, we are to do so uh, in a way that honors them as someone created in the Imago Dei, right? someone created in the image of God, and we're to do so in a way that honors the Lord, and we're to do so in a way that actually promotes spiritual flourishing in their lives, all dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. All right? So a few takeaways for us. Again, some of these are in your notes. Some of these I've jotted down since turning my homework into Pauline. But um, these are the takeaways. Number one, every human being is created in the image of God, and we must treat them with dignity. Right? That, that seems very basic. But if we observe what's going on in our culture, and the church isn't immune to that, right? we have forgotten that people are created in the image of God. Right? People are created in the image of God, thus they should be treated with dignity. Secondly, biblical confrontation should always be preceded by our own confession of sin to God. Okay, and again, we see that in Matthew seven. We should see that um, in our passage uh, as as we've worked through various passages this morning. Three, and this is not in your your notes. I, I rearranged the order as well, just for to make it more difficult on you. The um, number three, biblical confrontation should be chapter and verse biblical and not based on our preference. Right? So biblical confrontation should be chapter and verse biblical. That means I should be able to open up my Bible and, and and show the work. Right. Show the work. It should not be based on my own preference. If I'm confronting someone because they are annoying some preference I have, I'm sinning. Right? And I'm sinning against the Lord and I'm sinning against that individual. Okay? Fourth, which is also not in your notes, biblical confrontation should be as gentle as possible, right? We go back to Matthew chapter 7, get the log out of our eye, right? And then the, the way that Christ describes the sin in the brother or the sister's life is that they have a speck, right? And, and I think I've used this illustration before, but if my kids have uh, something stuck in their eye, uh, I, I, I open their eye up as gently as possible to blow it out, I don't want to do further damage to the eye. I don't want to further irritate the eye. And so we want to be as gentle as possible uh, in our confrontations of other people. Uh, That's number four. And then number five, uh, which is number three in your takeaways, the goal of confrontation is redemption. We should desire to see our brothers and sisters restored in Christ. And so our confrontations matter. They should be warm toward the Lord. They should be warm toward other people. Our fathers and our mothers should be honored in them. Our brothers and our sisters, whether young, same age, whatever, should be treated in such a way that they don't despair, that they aren't put to open shame, so that they have their best opportunity to repent. And we do so knowing that God in Christ has forgiven us much. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You for this time in Your Word. We thank You, Lord, that, uh, that, God, You restored us in Christ, that You sought us and You saved us in Christ Jesus. And, God, we are eternally grateful for that. And so, God, help us to um, demonstrate the heart of Christ Jesus as we continue uh, the work, that reconciling work that Christ started. Uh, where we are willing uh, to seek the one who has gone astray and bring them back to the fold. And Lord, if that is us this morning, give us grace and humility and repentance, Lord, and may we love one another enough uh, to speak words of life into each other's lives uh, so that we can walk in joy and in reconciliation with you and with those in this church. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.